are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. You have no idea how good it is to stand up here this morning and to look real life people in the face and preach. It is awesome. It seems like you're in the mood to celebrate, so you might want to join me in celebrating one group of people. And that is a group that I work with every day, my church staff, who has worked so hard to try to stay connected during these last 12 weeks. Would you like just to say, we appreciate you, we love you, church staff, you've worked really hard and we're grateful. I'm so blessed, so blessed to work with these folks. So, you know, during these last 12 weeks, I have had this desire, this deep desire uh, to be together again. In fact, I might even say that there were days when I said, I need to be with people and worship in person again. That's just been something I've dealt with. I think about the many people who are worshiping online this morning. Many don't yet feel like they should be here, and we encourage that decision. I've got a feeling they're saying, we feel a desire to be together. Here's what I've been wondering. As you felt that desire to be together... Did you ever feel a desire to be together? You just asked that. No, it's different. Because being together and being together are two different things. This is what I want to talk about, okay? The truth of the matter is we can be together and still not be together. We understand this really well. Physical togetherness doesn't mean unity. A lot of us can be in the same room and be very divided. And so especially over these last two weeks, did you ever have this sense that came over you that said, I really want to be together again, but beyond that, I really want us to be together again. So when I think about division, it's a world word that you understand really well. If I said to you, let me give you a picture, okay? And and this is the best picture I have of the world today. So here's my picture of the world today. I think this is what it looks like. I think the world is terribly divided. In fact, I would say that now at 58 years old, I have never in my lifetime lived in a season where I felt the world was so divided. So let me just ask you, am I alone in that? Or are there others in the room who would say, oh no, Rick, I think right now, I think the world is more divided than I ever remember in my lifetime. Would you raise your hand if you're with me in that? Most of us are together on that. We are divided about everything that you can imagine. We are terribly divided in politics. It is completely an us and them. It's a conservative liberal. I've never in my lifetime seen us so divided politically as a nation. We have felt the pain of racial division over these last couple of weeks. I received a letter from the Board of General Superintendents in the Church of the Nazarene, the six men that we asked to lead our denomination. And they said, we have been fighting a major virus called Corona. But in the last couple of weeks, an old virus has raised its head again in the form of racism. And we find ourselves fighting that deadly virus. And they are calling the church of the Nazarene today, all over the world, millions of people, to come together today and to pray and to fast 
for the nation. I I think we find ways to be divided about things like human sexuality. We are divided about immigration. We even had a pandemic come along and we said, now that's a good point of division. Let's divide over the coronavirus, you know? And we did. Incredible division. And so I don't, I don't like that picture at all. But if I had to give you a picture of the world today, that's the picture I would give you. It would be a picture of a severely divided world. Aren't you glad that we're not divided in the church? But we are. So, so today, I think we've got to live there for a little while. Would you like to hear a story? I, I was expecting a little more energy from you, but... So you might want to lean in. You are not leaning in, okay? You need to kind of lean in a little bit here. Here we go. So 2,000 years ago, there was a guy whose name was Paul, but he was known formally as... Those of you at home, you need to speak up a little louder if I'm going to hear you, okay? Formerly known as Saul. He is a devout religious man. He loves the one true God, Yahweh, with all of his heart. In fact, he was so devout that he said, I will combat anything that threatens my faith, my religion, and my love for Yahweh. Right? And so there was a group of people that was gaining some steam. They were known as the people of the way. They were known as followers of Jesus. And Paul said, the people of the way, these followers of Jesus, they are a threat to my religion, my faith, and to my God. He began to imprison them. In fact, he actually witnessed the execution of one Christian. His name was Stephen. And so, one day, walking down a road toward a city called Damascus, Jesus appears to Paul. It's like he is born again. His whole life changes. He is completely transformed. And he becomes, even to this day, the greatest spokesman for Jesus that has ever lived. So here's what he does with the rest of his life. He takes long journeys. I mean, journeys that last for years. And he goes to cities and he talks to people about Jesus. And as people become followers of Jesus, people of the way, he gathers them together and forms a church. He pastors the church for a couple of years sometimes, and then he moves on to the next city, okay? So on his second missionary journey, there were three. He goes to a city called Corinth, all right? It's strategic in his missionary mind. And the reason it's strategic is because Corinth is a major port city. It's a major economic center. He begins to talk to people about Jesus. And as he begins to talk to people about Jesus, they begin to put their faith in Jesus. And then, here's what happens next. He forms a little church. He pastors them for a year and a half, and then he moves to the next church plant. A little while later, he gets a report. The report is not good. What's going on at Corinth? They are terribly divided. So he writes what we call 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he addresses those five major divisions. Some say they're following Paul. Some say they're following Apollos. They have disagreements about what is sexually moral and immoral. What about food they sacrifice to idols over here at the idol temple? Can we eat it or can we not? What about when we come together for worship? Can we do this or should we not do this? They even disagreed about the resurrection. The problem is when he writes the letter, they don't receive it very well. So Paul says, 
I just need to go to Corinth. And if I go to Corinth, and if I can just get myself looking these people in the eye, just sit down and talk, we'll work this out. Boy, was he ever wrong. He goes to Corinth, but he later refers to it as a very painful visit. Because when he's in Corinth, they not only don't agree with him, but they question his apostolic authority. Should we even be listening to you? And then they question his lifestyle. What was it about his lifestyle that bothered them? You ready for this? He was poor. He was poor as dirt. Paul didn't own anything. Not only was he poor, but he kept landing in prison. But before they would put him in prison, they would whip him with whips or beat him with rods. And they said, you know what? I don't know that we want to identify with this guy. I mean, is this really the life that we want? Do we want to follow him? He's, he's poor. He keeps getting whipped and beaten, and he keeps spending months in prison. And besides that, they said, you're not a very good public speaker. Just, you know, just saying. You're not very good at it. And so some of the people then felt badly, began to repent. And when he writes 2 Corinthians, here's what he does. He says, it's okay. I forgive you. We're okay. He reconciles. Then he talks about their generosity. And then before he closes the letter, he talks to the people who still reject him and says, come on, let's get together. So what happens is Paul writes a group of Christians in Corinth who were together, but not together. Because physical togetherness does not mean unity. We can all be in the same room and be terribly divided, even Christians. But it's not what God wants for us. So may I take you to those last four verses of 2 Corinthians? Because what he does as he closes his letters is he echoes his major themes. Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Finally, finally, brothers and sisters. What, what does that phrase say to you? Brothers and sisters. What does that say to you? Family. Finally, family. That's right. We're part of the same family now. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. The default setting for a Christian is joy. There is seasons for lament in our lives without a doubt, but we are joyful people. We have a lot to rejoice about. He gives five commands, and then he gives two benedictions. Here are the five commands. Number one, rejoice. Number two, strive for full restoration. What does that say to you? Unity. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live at peace. It's all about unity, those five commands. And now here's the first benediction. And the God of what? Love and peace. This is what God's all about. God's all about love and God's all about peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When I was a high school student, I wanted to bring back some of the New Testament customs. And this was one that I was wanting to bring back. All God's people here. Probably he was in a city in Caesarea, send their greetings. And here's the second and final benediction. But I'm not going to read it to you. I want you to take a minute and just look around the room a little bit. See some people sitting around you. Don't breathe on them. Just look at them, okay? So think about if you're listening online, 
the people that you worshiped with week after week, maybe the people sitting in the living room with you. And I want you to say these words to the people around you. You ready? We're going to read it together. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Trinity Sunday. The grace of Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship, this is about fellowship with one another brought by the Holy Spirit be with you all. Annette and I, my wife, who's sitting here, we have a granddaughter whose name's Sadie. And I brought a picture with me today because I really wanted you to see it and because the picture has so much meaning to us. Why are you laughing over there when I say, I hardly ever mention my granddaughter, do I? I never bring it up. So you ready for the picture? Here it is, okay? This is the picture on the left of Sadie and Annette when Sadie was one year old, one year old and she was learning to walk. And so we were in Oxford, Ohio with our little granddaughter, Sadie, just a couple weeks ago. And Annette says, those are the steps that we took the picture on that you like so much. And so we recreated the picture with Sadie almost six years old, almost five years later. And it just has great meaning to us. Now, here's what's interesting to me. When I talk about my granddaughter too much um, and, and, and I share with people about her, nobody ever says, why are you so crazy about this kid named Sadie? Nobody ever says that. Nobody ever says to me, Rick, there are little girls everywhere that you could be fond of and you could, you know, invest your money and love and life in. Nobody ever says that. People understand. The reason that Sadie is so special to my wife Annette and me is because Sadie is our granddaughter. She is family. And family holds a special place in our hearts. Now, on this Trinity Sunday, when we open the Bible to 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gives us this, what I would call a complete picture of one God in threefold form. He also describes for us the Christian life. Let me, let me talk to you about it this way. I have a friend who's a pastor, and he said, we had this lady who came to our church who was not ever raised growing up going to church. She didn't really have a full understanding of what it meant to be Christian, but as she worshiped with us, she became very interested in becoming a Christian, became a student of the Bible. She finally comes to this place where she is born again. Her whole life changes. She is transformed completely, and she loves this new life walking with and following Jesus. He said, I remember when we were moving toward her baptism, the whole church was excited about it. But on the morning that she was supposed to be baptized, she runs me down looking for me in the church and says, I don't know if I can do this. And he's like, why? She said, I don't know. She said, the people here, I admit I love them, but man, sometimes they drive me crazy. Sometimes they say things that are terribly insensitive. They make mistakes. Sometimes they're selfish. And if I'm going to be baptized, that means that I'm in this family, and I don't know that I'm ready to commit myself to being in this family. He said she had studied the Scripture enough to understand that to be baptized into the church is to be joined together with this people and become part of this family. And he said she was 
baptized that morning. He said, I remember moving away a couple of years later and calling her one day, my wife and I, just to see how she was doing. And she goes, oh, I guess I'm doing okay, but these people still make me crazy. Let me put it together for you. These few verses. Here's what happens, okay? Paul says, we have been given the grace of Jesus. That's where Christianity starts. God comes all the way to where we are. It's called prevenient grace. Comes to us, loves us, draws us to himself. We are saved by grace, the Bible teaches us. It's all an act of God. And then it's grace being poured out in our lives to live the life that he has called us to. Christianity is about grace. It's the grace of Jesus. And it's the love of God. You know what God's like? God is, the Bible says, God is love. And he demonstrates his love for us by giving us Jesus. And then Paul goes from there to say, so now that we have been recipients of the grace of Jesus and the love of God, we now have been given fellowship through the Holy Spirit with one another and are joined together as a family. Koinonia is the word that he uses. Community, love for one another. That's who we are. A family. So what could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? But you and I know that Paul and the Corinthians and the Corinthians struggled greatly with koinonia. Fellowship, community, love for one another. And the truth is, the church of Jesus Christ today struggles greatly with koinonia, community, fellowship, love for one another. We can be together and not be together because physical togetherness does not mean unity. So when I said to you a moment ago that in all my life, I've never seen the world so divided. I'm going to say something to you that is also heartbreaking. In all of my life, I have never seen the church so divided. You see it too. It kills me. Jesus gave us the answer. You love one another like you love yourself. And in every moment, in every situation, you've just got one question to ask. What does it mean to love this person in this moment? If that is your question, you will never go wrong. I want to blame social media for everything these days. That's just the kick I'm on. I just want to blame. It's all social media's fault. But even there... Before I do anything else, what does it mean to love this person in this moment? See, here's here's what I'm trying to get to, all right? So I I I think you'll resonate with me. Why? Why in the world can we be disappointed in the lack of unity in the world when we cannot achieve unity in the church? How in the world can we kind of kick back and say, man, the world's so divided. What's going on? 
And, and the truth is, we're not even finding it in the community of faith. I don't know, did you hear the story about the two brothers who were farmers? Adjoining farms for 40 years, got along great, it was a great life, raised their kids next door to each other, their families intertwined, shared machinery on the farm, shared farm hands, worked on each other's farm until one day it all went sour when they disagreed about something, got sideways and could not fix it. Quit talking to each other and begin to only do things to annoy the other. And so one day there was a knock at the older brother's door. When he opened the door, a stranger stood there saying, I'm a carpenter. I'm needing a few days work, passing through. Didn't know if you had anything that was broken or needing repaired. The elder brother said, you see that farm across the way? It's my younger brother. We don't get along. We don't even talk. This passage of water that flows between us, he widened it to his farm, making it the size of a river just to annoy me. And then he says, I don't think you can repair or build anything to fix this. And the carpenter said, you headed to the fields. And he said, I'll be in the fields all day. He said, I've got an idea. I'll have it done by the time you get home. And when the older brother returned from working in the fields, his jaw dropped. He couldn't believe what the carpenter had built. A bridge over the water passage. A beautiful bridge with handrails and everything. And coming across the bridge was the younger brother saying, I can't believe this. After all I've done to hurt you, you built a bridge to connect us. And so on Friday afternoon, Pastor Thaddeus Black, who pastors our Two Lakes Church, joined me on a Facebook post that we did together. And Thaddeus said to me, Pastor Rick, God has given me an image, and the image is a bridge. He said, what do you do when you cross over a bridge? You go from one community to the next community. And Thaddeus said, I believe God wants me to build bridges between communities in our world. Do you know what God's been saying to me for the last two days? Rick, you've got some bridges to build. And it's what the Apostle Paul is calling the people in Corinth to do. Look at the commandments again, would you? Rejoice. You know... It, it, it's really, when you're a joyful person, it's really hard to live in a lot of disunity, you know? The default setting is joy. There are seasons for lament, but the default setting is joy, okay? Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live at peace. You know what he's saying? Build some bridges, why don't you? So I got something really good to share with you before I let you go, and I need to be thinking about letting you go. But there's a guy who I'm friends with named Chris Branstetter, who is a missionary in Asia. His mom and dad, Russ and Gail, attend our church. And he wrote a book recently, and his dad sent me a copy, and it's about unity. And Chris deals with this verse in Ephesians 4 where the Apostle Paul says, Keep the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. So talking to us, you ready? Here's a word for me and you. Here's what you guys should do today. You guys and me, this, we should keep the unity of the Spirit. This fellowship that's brought by the Holy, you should keep that in the bond of peace. And Chris said there was this revelation. It was like a light comes on to me. That Paul does not say, make, create, or generate unity. He doesn't say that. I think we think in terms of we need to build some unity. We need to create some unity. We need to make, we need to generate some. No, it's not what he said. He said you should keep it. And Chris said, what I realized is that when we receive the grace of Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship, the koinonia that is brought to us, fellowship with one another brought to us by the Holy Spirit, that's a gift. And what God is asking us to do is to keep it. Now, if we can keep it, that means we can also destroy it. And I think that's where we're at right here this morning. I think it's the question we've got to go home with today. And, and the question is, am I keeping the unity of the Spirit among believers? Or am I destroying it? That's, that's our question. Paul says... You're joined as a family when you come into the faith. That's why he calls us brothers and sisters. That's why he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, except during coronavirus season. But the whole thing with the kiss was unique to the believers of the early church because it signified our oneness and our being a part of this family. And so keep this unity as believers. He's not saying that we all have to agree with everybody on everything. We don't, we won't, it will never happen. And, and, and by the way, when did diversity become a bad thing? I think it's when we're living our lives mutually saying, you and I, we don't, we don't see this thing exactly the same, but you know what? The only question I have as I deal with you is what does it mean to love you in this moment? And I think it's the same question that you come back to me with. And so there's an awesome prayer that I want to pray with you before we go. It's by St. Francis of Assisi. And I'm going to pray it slowly. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And I'm going to ask you to contemplate these words. And I'm going to ask you to consider making these words your words as you hear me read them aloud. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, let me sow pardon. Where there is doubt, let me so faith. Where there is despair, let me sow hope. 
Where there is darkness, let me sow light. Where there is sadness, let me sow joy. O divine master, grant that I may not seek to be consoled, but to console. Grant me that I may not seek to be understood, but to understand. Grant me that I may not seek to be loved, but to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.